Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, when she was in middle school, she was doing a musical and the director had to leave the room. And right before he left, he turned around and said, while I'm gone, Sammy's in charge. Well, that was the beginning of what has become an extraordinary career as a director, one of the most respected, revered directors of her generation. Welcome the incredible Sammy Cannell to the podcast. A-OK. everybody. My guest today is Sammy Canold. Sammy is a theater and film director who is one of Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30 in Hollywood Entertainment, class of 2019. Her recent theater credits include Evita, Endlings, Ragtime, and Violet. She just completed her first documentary feature film, The Show Must Go On, chronicling the survival of live theater during the global pandemic. She holds a BA from Stanford University. I am so thrilled to welcome Sammy to the podcast because I'm such a crazy, crazy fan of yours and your beautiful work. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. And the the fandom is mutual. Uh, I'm such an admirer, both of yours and of of the podcast. So I'm honored to to be here. So there's so much to talk about because you have, in a very short period of time, um, become a, a rising star in sort of every lane you drive in, whether it's film, whether it's theater, whether it's um, in a, an artistic director position of all of these incredible theaters all over the land that we live in, which is the USA. Um, I wanna maybe just start with, you know, we're, we're speaking in May of 2021, you know, people will hear this whenever they, they're lucky enough to find this episode with you. <laughs> um, we are at a moment where after a year of, of really, very limited live entertainment. Um, Messages are coming through from government officials that things will be opening. And here in New York, 
especially where we live, um, the Broadway shutdown has just been remarkably painful for all the people who work in it and all the people who, who get to be reborn each time they leave a theater. Um, I want to talk about your documentary. It's not out yet, but I think it's completed. Is that correct? It is, it is. Okay. Um, and, and spoiler alert, the co-producer of this director is your mother, Dory Berenstein, an extraordinary Broadway producer, um, also who ha- has her hand in a million things. So can you talk us through a little bit about what you learned, what it is, what it excited you about this project? Absolutely. So um, I, I think the way you spoke to the shutdown is so um, potent and, and I feel like we're all now in this moment where it's like starting to get exciting, but there's still a lot of remnants of, of that, um, the pain of the past you know, year and, and some. Um, and so the journey with the documentary specifically for me um, started in June of last year. Um, I was you know, in uh, quarantine in my apartment like most other folks and, um, uh, despairing the loss of of you know our our livelihood um, and uh, uh, was talking to um, a friend of mine, Kristen Blodgett, who um, is a musical supervisor extraordinaire and has been working on Andrew Lloyd Webber shows for thirty plus years. And um, she we were on Facetime with some friends, and um, she said, you know, I'm I'm going to Korea in a few weeks uh, to work on the South Korean tour of Cats. And I was just floored because at the time, uh, nobody was making theater anywhere, you know, except for on Zoom. Like that was that was it. Yeah. Um, and I had heard about the production of Phantom that was in Korea um, and a few Korean language shows, um, but that was it. And so connecting the dots of Phantom sort of being the only surviving large scale English language show, Cats about to be the second, um, and simultaneously watching Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, start this campaign to champion um, the feasibility of the arts in the wake of the, of, of, the, of the pandemic, I sort of connected all those dots and said, you know, I think there's a story here. Um, it won't be the, you know, tome on theater that happened during the pandemic because it would be impossible to chronicle like every effort. But here's a very specific story about a group of people who came together uh, to say, let's keep the flame alive. And um, so I, you know, thought, let I want to make a documentary. I wrote to Andrew because I've been, you know, lucky enough to to cross paths and work in his orbit a bit and um, said, you know, is uh, is anybody documenting both your efforts and the efforts in Korea? And he said, not to my knowledge, go for it, gave us full access. Um, and then three weeks after that email, I was on a plane to Korea. Um, and, uh, it all just came together very, very quickly. Um, and time we weren't even leaving our apartments. (laughs) That was like at the, at the peak of our uncertainty, what is safe, what isn't safe. We were still like windexing our groceries at the time. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, so to go from maybe a zoom reading to getting on a plane, going to another country, uh, to embark upon this incredible project. How did you, how was your comfort level? Forget like this is an amazing idea and for art, I will, I, the show must go on. But this was like a very, very vulnerable time in the world. How do you wrap your brain around that? Um, for me, it was a no brainer maybe because I'm young and a bit 
reckless. <laughs> um, uh, uh, just because I was, I mean, also I was just dying to put my energy towards something. Like I, I just was sitting in my apartment being like, what is the point of life? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think to, to have an answer sort of drop out of the sky. Um, Had you been to South Korea before? I had. Um, and that was part of the comfort. I think that like, I knew people there. I knew that Kristen was going. Um, and you know, uh, I, I knew that I would be with a company, uh, of theater people. Um, so, and also frankly, the journey was daunting, like getting on a plane was daunting. Yeah. But once I was in South Korea, I was in a country that was a hundred times safer than ours. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think it, it was sort of, it was about like that plane flight was the scary part. And sure. that was kind of it. Cause I had to quarantine in a government facility for two weeks before we started. Um, what does that mean? So the, the, what is a government facility? It's um like a, the Korean government took over um, a collection of uh, hotels and then also army bases. I did not end up on an army base, but okay. I, yeah, um, I was in a hotel. That's another documentary. <laughs> Completely. I had a friend who ended up on the army base, and I was like, "Wow." Um, but it was very sort of um, dystopian. Like you show up at this hotel, and like all the normal hotel-y things are like covered in um, tarps and, and whatnot. And then you get put in a room and told, you know, you can't leave the room for the next two weeks, otherwise you'll be deported. Um, and they bring you three meals a day to your door. And um, Korea had that system in place for a year. And I think they just announced last week that they're now allowing travelers, um, if they've been vaccinated, to skip the quarantine. So if I went back, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to. So I understand how you could um, move people around safely if they quarantine, if they're, you know, now people are vaccinated. This was pre-vaccine, so it was a lot of testing. Um, I also watched you on some kind of panel that you did on Zoom with sort of theater makers, global theater makers, um, talking about double casting, maybe triple casting. There were ways in which they were able to protect their actors day to day or replace actors quickly if necessary. And I assume, you know, union rules are different, but are the theaters themselves in South Korea, are they all modern facilities? Were all of the places just eons ahead of us in terms of being structurally safe compared to what we ask actors and theater makers um, front and back of house, obviously, in, in American theaters, older theaters, to, to take on? Is that, a, is that why it could be possible? Um, unfortunately, that's a big part of it. Um, and I think it's like a sort of reckoning that a lot of people who own or manage venues are, are having right now, because Korea, in, in many ways, Korea, uh, Korea's brilliance is part of why this was possible, but in many ways they got lucky because mm -hmm. um, Korean musical theater is an industry that's only about 20 years old. It, it, it you know, it started when, uh, or, or sort of, I should say, westernized musical theater. Sure. Uh, uh, came to Korea 20 years ago. Um, and at the time they didn't have venues that could house it. So they built, a lot of venues, but all of those venues were built within the last 20 years. And accordingly, they have state-of-the-art um, 
ventilation. Right. Yeah. So um, they didn't have to update any of their of their um, HVAC systems. Um, whereas now, so many venues in America are having this, you know, crisis of how do we pay for updated HVAC. Um, so that was part of it. Hygiene uh, already is sort of a cultural priority to a greater extent than it is um, here. Uh, and I think that there were two um, epidemics that uh, hit Korea in the last decade. And so they sort of had been through something like this in recent memory. Um, and immediately when it hit, um, and it hit there much earlier than it hit here, but they were sort of able to follow a roadmap um, for how to handle it, which is why Phantom was able to open um, the week that Broadway and the West End shut down. Um, so, you know, apart from uh, two weeks where uh, Phantom shut down because there were positive cases in the company. Um, Was that during rehearsal or production? Production. Uh-huh. But I think that there's also a, an interesting lesson in, in that as well, because um, I, I talk to a lot of people now who are saying when Broadway reopens, gosh, if there's an outbreak in, in one theater, we're all toast and all the theaters are going to have to shut. And I would say Korea proves Otherwise, Korea proves that there what there have been outbreaks backstage. Um, there have been zero cases of audience to audience transmission, but there have been incidents backstage. And in those cases, they handle the outbreak. They shut down the show for a specific period of time, but it's usually only that given show. And they right. have protocol for how they handle it. So it doesn't decimate the entire industry when there's an issue at one show. Right, because when we were still open on Broadway, there was an usher in one Broadway theater who I believe also, you know, was freelance perhaps, and maybe that's not the right word, but was ushering in more than one theater. And so that was front of house um, and one person traveling. uh, And and whether or not that one person in fact was, was the contact tracing. I don't, I never followed the story to kind of know if in fact that is what happened. Um, that's yet another protocol in terms of how we do things in our community that that would make it harder to control it. Well, I think that's, to me, the, the front of house conversation is really interesting because um, if everybody uh, on that side of the curtain, on the audience side of the curtain, yeah. is wearing a mask 100% of the time, what the Korea example shows us is that we don't have to shut down the show um, if there is a positive case, because there have been multiple incidents of audience members with COVID coming to the theater in Korea, obviously not realizing that they right, have. Right, right. But then uh, once they realize they have COVID, they call the 16 people who are within a six foot radius of the person who was infected, test them, and they, in every single case, have not tested positive. Right. So Masks work. Masks work. Yeah. yeah. And, and ventilation and filtration works. Right. So, um, so I think, um, you know, if we can follow those protocol effectively, which is an if, but if, uh, I don't see any reason why shows have to be canceled because an audience member tested positive, right? Um, unless, you know, there's an issue where it was, I think backstage is another situation because if there's an outbreak, there's an outbreak, right. but um, front of house, 
Korea, I think, is a helpful example. So you may be privy, and then and then we're going to move on because this is not a special edition, the future of Broadway, <laughs> although you are so um, plugged in to so many conversations. And I think a lot of people in the community feel not plugged in. You know, it's like little bits of pieces coming through of, of Intel. Um, is it your understanding that so many, I mean, we have we have the most beautiful beautiful historical buildings that make up so many of the Broadway theaters and they're old, right? They're just really old buildings. Um, In the past year, is it your understanding that while Broadway has been shut down, many of these theaters and theater owners have been doing HVAC renovations inside that we don't know about making things safer backstage and and for the audience? I believe that to be the case. Um, I don't, what I don't know is if it is all of them, mm-hmm. if it is all that are owned by a certain owner. Um, I mean, I know there are uh, a few specific examples that have been publicly, like we know the St. James is COVID compliant. Right. Um, but other than that, I don't believe there is a list published of how to feel safest if you're picking a show to go to based on that. Yeah, my hope is that by the time that these venues reopen, all of them will be compliant. And I know that there are grants for Mm -hmm. venues of different shapes and sizes to be able to afford the necessary renovations. Um, I mean, I don't own or operate a venue, so I, I feel, I don't feel qualified to say everybody should go do it, but I think that we're gonna need to be able to tell our audiences um, this is what we have in place here uh, so that you feel safe coming back. And I think that's something that Korea has been amazing at in saying, being very vocal with their audiences and saying, um, this is why you should feel safe coming to the theater. Uh, here's, you know, what we've done. Um, right. And so that's not a, a criticism because we have yet to reopen here um, in a, in a major way. Um, and I know that like, the events that have happened in Broadway houses have been very, you know, the New York pops up events have been very specific about what their protocol is. But I think as we sort of reopen on mass, that will be a critical component in, in um, audience, you know, trust. A lot of the work you've done, I would call it environmental theater, right? You've taken, you've taken, you know, pieces of musical theater history that people love so much and found a way to to reinvent them each time. And, and, and it's part of why you have become just a sought after, beloved, respected director um, because, you know, you take these things that we all feel such ownership of, like, wait a minute, Avita, you can't change. Like, what could you possibly do to Avita? And you're like, I'm going to have Avita played by a 15-year-old actress when she is 15 in the show, in the story of the show. Um, Violet, you're like, I'm going to put it on a bus. I'm going to go to Ellis Island and I'm going to do this piece that's all about sort of immigrant stories, right? So in, in your own um, growing up, as someone clearly who loved theater and in a household that was just surrounded by theater lovers and theater producers. Um, By the way, is it true that your parents met because they were both working on the film Dirty Dancing or have I morphed different stories together? It is true. (laughs) So there you go. Um, uh, 
tell me this, how, how the, the love of like reimagining these pieces that you probably knew so well too. um, Where does that come from? Where does that inspiration or impulse come from? I think, first of all, thank you. That's so kind. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. uh, (laughs) uh, I, I think first of all, it's being, having the upbringing that, that, as you said, I had, you know, I, anytime we were in the car, we would listen to, you know, the Broadway channel, Sirius XM, like Broadway was what we talked about at the dinner table. It was just everywhere. And I think that like, you can't help, but sort of start to dream about what, what you would do. I mean, I got to watch my mom make things for a living and, and that was really inspiring. And so um, were you an actress yourself? Were you a kid actor? Would you do school plays? Were you into? I, I was in the school plays, um, but I, I didn't have much talent um, a, on stage. And um, did you I, know that? No, um, it took me you a while. Loved it. Yeah, you know, I, just, I, I was having a blast. But I, I think I was very lucky that um, I was in a summer program in my town. Um, where I was in a production of Joseph and the, the um, teacher who was directing the production of Joseph um, had to be in too many places at once. So he would leave the room uh, and he would say, uh, Sammy's the oldest um, and I was 13. Um, and so um, she's in charge. And I would just like tell the other kids where to go. And ultimately he credited me as the director of um of that show and then hired me the next two summers to, um, to direct Annie and you're a good man, Charlie Brown. And, um, uh, and, uh, so was that that the transition? Did you stop being in the shows or were you also in them still? I was in, I was in Charlie Brown, but I, uh, was not in Annie. Annie was the last one. And that was where I sort of was like, I'm a director now. I mean, I was 15. Um, (laughs) But uh, I think so rarely at that age, do we get such a bizarre opportunity like the one I had to do something on the other side of the table um, because it's all about the only jobs I think we have an awareness of are the ones that we see literally on stage. Right. So I think for me, it was the combo of getting to watch the directors my mom was working with, like Michael Mayer or Jerry Mitchell, Um, and then sort of having this weird experience of getting to try it myself where I was like, oh, I could do this. Um, and, uh, but the site specific, um, work, environmental work, um, that really came through an obsession with, um, the American Repertory Theater. Like when I was in college, I like had like ART posters on my wall. It was like very nerdy. Um, And uh, I was obsessed with their mission statement, which is um, uh, uh, expanding the boundaries of theater. And then they often tag something onto the end of it via reimagining the relationship with the audience. Hmm. And I was like, gosh, that's so interesting. How do you take shows that we know and love and, expand the boundaries of what we know and love about them. And so that sort of led to, you know, those productions you were mentioning. What was one of the first, do you remember the first show you saw, Broadway show that you saw? I'm told that it was big. Uh, well, actually, no, that's the first musical. Uh, uh, Full Moon would have been my first. Which your mom 
my mom was a producer of with yeah. brilliant Bill Irwin. That's a, that's yeah. a great starter show. Great starter show. I was, uh, I, I don't think I was one yet one years old. So yeah. um, it's I in had there it. somewhere. It's Irwin. all in there. Yeah. So you, um, you went to Stanford and Harvard. I did. Um, I think your mom went to S- Smith and yeah. Harvard or, or Yale maybe. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think there's a great, I don't know, where did your dad go? Uh, UCLA. Okay. So obviously there was a tremendous emphasis on education yeah. in your home um, and really like serious academic pursuit. Yeah. Um, you know, because your parents were already in this business, you could have, you could have kind of beelined right to professional work rather than, so when you, when you are starting to think about college, um, and you end up at Stanford, are you thinking already, I'm going to have a professional life in the arts or, or what, what, and why Stanford, if that's what you're looking to do? It, it's, it's sort of, uh, the question when people are like, you went to Stanford for theater? Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So what happened was, um, that I, I had my sort of 13, 14, 15 year old directing, uh, obsession. Yes. And then went into a period of revolt in high school as high schoolers often do, where I was like, I do not want to be like my parents. I don't want to work in an industry where, uh, people are going to say, um, you know, Sammy's her daughter and that's why, you know, blah, blah, blah. Got and it. I was like, I'm going to go do something else. Um, and so I drove very hard in the direction of education policy, um, which has very little to do with theater. Um, but I, uh, I applied and ultimately went to Stanford because I thought I was going to study education policy, international education policy. In okay. Um, Where did that come from at 17 years old? Uh, did you do summer internships with like the ACLU? Like, like <laughs> who were you that you sort of pivoted from arts and education, which makes sense, obviously, because it was impactful, but, but that specific major, what, what was that? Who influenced that? It was, there was an amazing program at my high school called Authentic Science Research, where we got to spend three years doing a research project on one topic in Mm -hmm. either uh, hard science or in social science. And the way they had us choose our topics was we just read a lot of newspaper articles and then would say, I'm interested in in this. And I read an article about the Finnish education system and how it was at the time, the best in the world. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I don't know why I was interested. Um, But I I did a three-year study on the Finnish education system and that's sort of what what led to it. But in Finland while you were in high school or is it all? Yeah, Yeah. I I, I went to Finland I'm going to use it as my little known fact. Okay. Um, Damn it. I will. Um, I will. Uh, we will I, cut and paste. <laughs> no, I have. I can use other little known facts. Okay. Um, uh, but I, I went to school in Finland for a bit my senior year of high school. Okay. To um, to, to to study what it was like to um, be in the Finnish education system. And it's amazing. <laughs> By the way. Yeah. Little known fact. Little known everything fact. everything they're known for. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so it's a, but I think I, I went to college and 
was like full speed ahead. Like I'm going to work for the secretary of education, you know, and then, uh, second weekend I was like in education policy classes during the day. And then I was extracurricularly for fun doing theater in the evenings. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, I'm having way more fun (laughs) in the evenings that I am during the day. I think I've miscalculated here. Yes. And so do you continue with that major or do you slide over to a theater major? I switched. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I became theater and performance studies is what they call it there. And did you start, I mean, the Bay area, you know, you're, you're even further North, right. When you're up at Stanford, but that part of the country has such incredible theater going on. Um, are you, are you starting to work in actual professional theater situations? Yeah, I, I, I got lucky a few times in being able to um, do professional work or like pseudo professional work um, while being in college. Um, and it was primarily because uh, I got a job as a PA on the pre-Broadway um uh, tryout of Beautiful in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and that led to a job as a PA on the national tour of the Gershwin's Poor Game Best when it came through San Francisco, it launched out of San Francisco. Um, and I was sort of doing those while in, in school. Um, and then the relationships from those productions are sort of what led to everything post-college. Um, so I feel lucky that I sort of got to keep those two trips. So did you take a gap before you went to get your MA or did you go straight from Stanford to Harvard? I went straight, yeah. Because you wanted what? More of an education in directing or what what did you think? Well, it's it's funny you said, you know, my my I grew up in a home where everybody valued education because it's very true. Um and what happened was I was at Stanford and um, was a junior and I was sort of itching, uh, now I sort of think of it as a bit naive, but I was um, itching to get to New York. I I wanted to come make theater. Um, and I felt sort of, there weren't a ton of theater people at Stanford at the time. Now there, there are many more. Um, and I sort of felt like I was, you know, I, I wanted a full community. Um, and so I, uh, I sort of, tried to squeeze in the credits to be able to graduate early, but my parents were like not having it that I was going to graduate early and not do four years. And they said, you, you need to figure out how to do a a fourth year of learning before you hit the the workforce because you're not ready. Um, And um, my compromise with them was I'll apply to grad programs on the East coast and see if I can sort of do that out East and, um, it, it worked out. Um, but, uh, silly reason to go to grad school, but ultimately, um, fruitful. And is that where the connection to ART started while you're at Harvard? It, it started actually on uh, Porgy and Bess because Diane Paulus came out to San Francisco to direct Porgy and Bess. And I got to know her and her team through that. And then, um, ended up working on, uh, workshops of Finding Neverland while I was um, in school. So that was sort of the dis- why I decided to um, go to Harvard because it was like uh, 
a Diane Paulus world. Diane Paulus world, also, right? <laughs> Sixty seconds away from from air. Yeah, yeah. So it, it just everything just sort of aligned very beautifully. I I got very lucky. <laughs> it's kind of incredible when you think of sort of the the magic about being born at a certain time or 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 right place, right time, right? Like in you for your generation, for your age specifically. Um, the number of powerful, brilliant female directors, still far too few, obviously, in terms of the, the numbers and percentages worldwide. But, but you have also worked with and for in associate positions or assistant positions. Um, well, well, you can tell people the different shows and different people that you've worked with um, who, would, who I would imagine would make it feel like, oh, this is actually possible. Completely. They're I mean, winning Tonys. They're doing right. Yeah, I, I I was an intern for the Tony Awards the year that Diane Paulus won her Tony, and I just remember standing in the back of, um, was it the Beacon? The Beacon or yeah, yeah, when it was that not year. Radio City, um, yeah, <laughs> and just watching her and being like, oh my god, I can do this because the the directors I grew up around as much as I deeply cherish their mentorship and and example were all white men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then to be exposed to Diane and, and Rachel Chavkin and Lear de Bessonet and a whole host of, of other female direct- directors who are the sort of the, the generation above me, um, uh, I'm so lucky to be the beneficiary of the paths that they've, you know, trod. So, so there's this kind of statement, women supporting women it's yeah. a hashtag and it's a way of life for so many people, but it's not always the way. And so uh, uh, there's no, we're not naming names here, but have you felt, because I see you being so generous and so constantly out there supporting young women to pursue careers like yours. What has your experience been? I, I think um, it's, I've been so lucky to work with women who have um, been so open and generous and- um, Not threatened. Not threatened, not not in my experience. I, yeah. I'm sure those women exist. Um, yes. uh, but uh, I, I mean, I can think of like small incidents, but I think that like the, the women that I've produ- worked for primarily, um, uh, it's been a different story. and. W- one of the things that I think best exemplifies this is when I worked for Rachel Chavkin, which I did for over the course of four, four years, um, she had this rule with her assistants and associates that your work always comes first, which I think is like a, a radical rule because I was trained as, a, as an assistant and associate that you are like, it, it doesn't matter if you want to sleep. It doesn't matter if you need lunch. It's like you, your director is, you know, your priority all the time. Right. And for her to say like, yeah, work hard, like, you know, be a total workhorse, but also if there's an opportunity for you to do your own directing and it conflicts with your work for me, uh, your own work is, is the priority. And she was true to that throughout our, our relationship. You know, I would have a reading and I would go to her like, oh no, Rachel, like I have this reading. I don't want to like, you know, and she would be like, you have to do the reading, Sammy. And I would be like, okay. Um, and, uh, that is, I think how mentorship, an example of how mentorship can be incredible. And, and I now as, 
now having my own assistants and associates, I think about it a lot because when they come to me with those things, I'm like, oh gosh, it's so hard not to have an associate on that day. And I'm like, how did Rachel, yes. how did Rachel find it in herself to be so generous? Yeah. Um, so. Did you start with her on Natasha and Pierre or was it even earlier than that? Yeah. Um, I, at when uh, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet was at 18, uh, was at uh, the ART. Um, the 1812. Yeah. The 1812 words. Yeah. Um, uh, that's how I ended up on the show and then working with her. And um, when I moved to Broadway, I moved to New York to, to follow it. You know, both she and Diane, um, aside from having just incredible, like they're visionaries, right? In terms of how they can see what they want this thing to be and then bring hundreds of people along to make that vision hold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and surprise us all each time. Are there things, um, and then I need to talk to you about Evita and the TED talk, the Broadway TEDx talk that I saw you do, which I just was like, who is this person? <laughs> oh, that's what is happening. So we're gonna get to that in a minute because it's just mind blowing. Everyone stop listening, go watch <laughs> Sammy's TED talk and then come back. Um, what are things that, you know, as a young director yourself at the time, you just, you just gave us an example of like letting people go do their thing and still holding a place for them to come back without punishment, right? Yeah. Um, or consequence. Um, what are things that to this day, like you're like, I, on the first day of rehearsal, I remember Diane starts every first day. For me, I would think the first day would be the most terrifying. Like you're standing there and you have to tell an entire, like you're captain of this ship and you're going to tell everyone, this is what we're doing, right? Like, is there a way you start every rehearsal that you kind of like stole from Diane or stole from Rachel or embellished based on? Yeah, I think that like the, the and I know this is true of so many directors who've done assistant and associate work. Yeah is that like the way we direct is an amalgamation of the people that we directed for. And that doesn't mean, you know, I'm not 100% Diane Paulus, I'm not 100% Rachel Chapkin, I'm not 100%, you know, Scott Schwartz or anybody else that I, that I yeah. work with. Um, but uh, I take bits and pieces of like, oh, that resonates with me or, you know, that doesn't resonate with me. And um, so I think um, one of the things that I think Rachel does beautifully is um, her rooms often have a sort of uh, humor and uh, lightness uh, and uh, spirit of collaboration to them um, that I've uh, tried very hard to replicate in my rooms because I think it just makes everybody feel like they're, you know, enjoying themselves. Mm -hmm. Is not want to come to work exactly like you yeah. want people who who want to come to work as 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 a director because. Um, when I first started directing, I was like, okay, business. And it's like, yes, business, but also the more that the room feels like a, a family and collaborative process, the, I think the better result you're gonna have and the more you're all gonna like enjoy your lives. But, um, and then I think, you know, one thing that Diane does that I've used in a lot of processes is she'll often do these um, character presentations at the beginning of a rehearsal process where um, uh, actors, will uh, give presentations, particularly ensemble members will give presentations on their character. And there's a specific like ingredient list that she has for those presentations that I use. Um, because I think it just helps 
sometimes the text gives us very little information about particularly the ensemble. Right. So it helps to sort of flesh out the world in ways that if I just started staging, we might not know like, oh, these two ensemble members are married. And like, you know, th this one met this one last month or, you know, so I use that and a, a lot of things. Those are just mm -hmm. two examples. So what I was alluding to before referencing is that I went to, is it called TEDx Broadway? My, my brain, I, it's been a weird year and I'm losing language or sometimes or names no, or things. Names. <laughs> I'm like, what's that person's name? I knew them very well. <laughs> no, I've been to many of these events. Um, I, I think your mom mentioned to me uh, that you would be speaking. And I was like, that's adorable. What's, <laughs> what's it going to be? Um, which is why you went to Stanford and Harvard, by the way. So people like me are not, you know, um, uh, wondering why is she a TEDx Broadway? But <laughs> You spoke, and I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about it in your own words, because it was one of, I mean, A, just as a presentation, as a, as a storyteller, um, I thought, wow, you are so fluid and articulate and compelling, and I'm sure you were nervous because it's nerve-wracking, but you were so in your body, and I thought that's what a challenging thing this, this woman has taken on, but the story itself was just so unique and beautiful and inspiring, so, so I'm not going to make you do the whole thing, but can you <laughs> kind of give us a snapshot into why that was worth telling a story about because it was so unique. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was terrified because you were, yeah, because I, you know, I was a debater in high school. So I public speaking is not scary to me or like being on a panel is not scary to me, but having to memorize and then perform like what actors do um, yeah. is, is daunting. And I, my biggest problem was was memorization because, you know, I wrote the thing a, a month before the. Uh, How long was it meant to be? Did they tell you it's it's fifteen minutes, or did they t like what was the time? Yeah, I think fifteen was the okay. cap, um, and they not everybody memorized, but they had at some point said you should memorize, and I took that <laughs> to heart, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I um, Jim McCarthy, who runs TEDx Broadway, um, has this like amazing process that he goes through with everybody who they invite to do it, where you just have these like um, conversations um, over so the creative sessions together. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know that was going to be my topic when they asked me to do it. They just asked me to talk. Okay, um, and then he and I together figured out what the topic was gonna be, um, which I was excited about because we were coming up on that production of Evita at, at City Center, but I hadn't, and, and a press release had come out saying that there are gonna be two actors playing Ava, but everybody was like, what's that about? Um, <laughs> and I hadn't gotten a chance to sort of like explain myself because I figured, oh, well, the production will explain itself. But I think, like you said, people have uh, attachments to beloved shows and I think um it was an opportunity for me to say why um and hopefully that was apparent in the production itself but also for folks who didn't get to see it or at the time folks who were deciding whether or not to buy tickets I think that was sort of a helpful thing I hope 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but then you talk about Ava Perone's nurse. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit about what that story is and what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I went to Argentina several times um, in my obsession with Ava Perone vis-a-vis the musical. Um, and uh, sort of most prominently went uh, the, the summer before directing the show at City Center. And uh, I was there with uh, the show's associate director, Rebecca Aparicio, and she and I, through some amazing connections, uh, got connected with um, a woman who is, uh, now she's 94, uh, but at the time was 92. Um, and uh, her name is Maria Eugenia Alvarez. And she was Ava's um, private nurse when Ava was dying of, of cancer. I talk about Ava like I know her, like Ava. I'm like, sure you feel like you do. I, I do, um, after all this, you yeah. know. Uh, we're on a we're on a first name basis, but um, <laughs> um, but uh, we drove out to her home in Longchamps, um, which is like three hours outside of Buenos Aires, and um, uh, got to talk with her about what it was like to um, be friends with Ava Perón and um, to sort of like ha- have a conversation with someone who is living history. Um, it was just mind-blowing for me. And then we brought all of the things that she taught us back um, and put them into the production. And so it was just sort of, um, it blew my mind because it, it it taught me a lot about the way that I want to make theater um, in, in terms of like how to go about digging into a subject that I otherwise might say like, oh, I read the script, I got it. Uh, but particularly with things that are historical and particularly with things where there are people who are alive, who are related to the subject matter, we have an amazing opportunity to like dig deeper and make it even more, more real. And, and I really want, I I don't want to tell, I, Sam isn't going to tell the whole story of, of why her time with this woman and sort of the, the message and gifts with great specificity this woman gave her because I really want you guys to go <laughs> give that TED talk more views. Um, but, but, you know, one can really love musicals and mm-hmm. one can really have um, incredible instinct, which you do um, in terms of how to stage something in a way that is, makes it worthy of doing it again. Um, and you've proven yourself over and over again to just be just make it seem effortless for the audience knowing that, you know, you're traveling to these places and, you know, it's not effortless. Um, <laughs> but, but that it's another thing to kind of understand, you know, casting and figuring out, understanding voices, right? Understanding movement, understanding all the things that your performers have to do and being able to bring new people that you haven't, we haven't all seen before onto yeah. a stage, which you've done many times amidst, you know, very established performers, you've brought in incredible new talent that you've turned us all onto through your discovery of them with casting or whatever your magical process is. But learning about like voice and what someone is capable of doing beyond the audition room, I feel like, did you study musicals? Have you studied voice? Like, where does that um, confidence come from? It's something that, you know, I, I, I often think about this as a young director that I'm like, oh gosh, I wish I could just like 
press pause and be like, sorry, I need to like go take a music theory class and then I'll be able to answer your question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and so often that's not possible. And so you sort of have to like fake it till you make it. I think there's an assumption that directors, I think, um, you know, don't need to have all the answers. They just need to know who the right people to consult are to to get the answers. And um, it was interesting. I, I I just bought a keyboard and I was like having a conversation with um, my friend Kristen, who I mentioned earlier, who's a you know amazing musical supervisor. Um, and I said I got a keyboard because I'm gonna you know I I read music but I don't uh, play um, and I I want to figure out how to be like really well versed in music theory so that. If, if something's happening in the room, I'll be able to say like, no, uh, I think that is sharp or that's flat or, you know, like have that sort of uh, sixth musical sense. And Kristen was like, um, I don't think you need to do that. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was just like, well, like you can if you want to, but I think that it's actually more effective for directors to say um, something about the way this moment sounds vocally to me is a bit too cold or like I'm, I'm hearing the, you know, the color gray or, and, and then for people who are really experts in this to be able to interpret what you're saying and come to a solution. Because if we know too much, um, we might go direct to the solution and not let people who are better at their jobs, um, than we are at their jobs, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, solve the problem. And, and she wasn't saying that in a, uh, like, don't come for my job way. Um, she she right. was like, you know, you, you don't actually have to wear all the hats. Like, right. And um, I think she was relieving you, know. you of any pressure you were putting on yourself to also be an expert in that column as well. Exactly. Right. And I really took that to heart. So my keyboard is sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> but you said you read music. Like, is that because you took piano as a kid? Like how, yeah, are you an accomplished almost... musician? No, <laughs> um, uh, I wish. Um, uh, I, I did take piano as a kid. So that's how I know like, which note is C. Right. Um, but I think in recent years, it's been because I'm a very like prep obsessed director and particularly on large musicals, particularly at places like Encores where you have to work really fast. Yeah. Um, I like to give actors counts um, uh, and some actors like it and some actors don't. In terms of, it, it, can you be more specific when yeah. you say I like to give actors counts? Like on the top of the fifth count of eight, um, uh, enter through the door. Got it. I'll also give them a, you know, that's on the lyric blah, mm -hmm. but sometimes there aren't, lyrics or sometimes right. there's notes playing yeah it out and I find because I work with a lot of dancers that's they their brains respond to that so for that reason I've learned how to like speak music um and that's mostly through like when I'm prepping for a, to stage a given number I'll like call the associate music director <laughs> these the seats hate me um and I'll be like hey, I, I I think I'm counting this in eight, am I right? And they're mm -hmm. like, yeah, you're right. And I'm like, okay, like <laughs> what's happening? But you know, through those conversations I've sort of like picked up along the way. Are you going to be directing Carmen? It's, I don't know. Um, I it was on the agenda before. And yeah. as, as a traditional opera 
or what was the, what's the fantasy about it? Yeah. So Carmen uh, was slated to be with Master Voices uh, at Rose Hall at Lincoln Center in April of, top of April of 2020. So obviously didn't happen. Right. Um, uh, and I, I believe that Master Voices is still hoping to do it. Um, it's just a question of like when and where and how, but um, they have this amazing, uh, I think it's like a hundred people choir. Um, and then we had uh, professional uh, opera singers who were uh, playing all the principals. Um, and it was a one night concert, but the full opera, um, which for me was a great way to learn opera because I mean, in addition to being really exciting in and of itself, um, I don't think I would have wanted to start with a full production of right. an opera, right. um, but this allowed me to sort of dip toes in. Um, and, uh, even though the concert didn't happen, though, hopefully it will, you know, happen in the future. Um, I learned so much from prepping for it uh, because Ted Sperling, who runs Master Voices, is like a opera, you know, maven. So he was able to teach me a lot um, along the way. So tell me about the things that you are able to kind of look forward to or that you've been working on beyond this incredible documentary that I think is going to teach us so much. <laughs> and like all great documentaries, I know we're going to fall in love with the people you've kind of set us up to fall in love with um, and, and or feel their heartbreak, whatever it is that we're going to see. Um, and maybe get to know Andrew Lloyd Webber in a way that some of us don't know him yet. Um, talk to me about things that we have to look forward to that are in that incredible brain of yours right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, it's funny you say that about the characters in the dark. Cause when I watch it, I'm like, I love these people so much, but I'm like, Oh, I, I actually love them. Cause I know them. I hope other people also fall in love with them. Um, Your family um, and you in particular have a great history of figuring out how to create an experience that goes beyond your heart and into <laughs> ours. So I have zero, zero um, fear that that won't happen, just so you know. <laughs> That's so kind. I, and I, um, yeah, I'm very excited to, to share it hopefully soon. Um, and yeah, I'm, um, I've sort of, uh, been figuring out what it looks like to work in film in addition to theater and and by film I mean documentary film but also feature film um, and I'm working on two uh, feature films right now that are sort of like in in development and mostly learning about how to um, make them because I don't I mean now I know how but when I first sort of started off on the journey had no clue are these adaptations of novels or plays or are, are they secret projects still or? The, the titles are, I'm, I'm not supposed to say, but the, but the, I can talk about them generally. And one of them is an adaptation of a book. Um, and the other is sort of a, a historical examination of, of two figures from history. Um, and so, and I love both so much. Uh, and I think that, um, I, I think I got very lucky in in um, getting to work on, you know, the first two things that I'm getting to work on in that world are sort of things that artistically 
I'm genuinely so excited about because I sort of would have, if someone said, you know, here's a film about something that you hate, I would have been like, fine. <laughs> no, yeah, I'll do it. I mean, your body of work already is so huge. And the fact that during this pandemic, um, you've been able to figure out ways to be creative and move other aspects of your dreams forward, um, which just means in all these projects, all the hundreds of people that you're going to give opportunities to um, and art for is really amazing. So before I let you go, because um, maybe you have one or two other things you need to do today, um, tell me a little known fact, and it could be, again, that you did get to go to Finland, um, but is there another little known fact that maybe has can pop into your head spontaneously as we sure. as we close? Um, trying to think of a good one. Uh, I was partially named after the cartoon character Yosemite Sam, who, if you know what he looks like, he has these this like incredible red handlebar mustache and is like a you know tiny little uh cowboy and uh so the resemblance is uncanny, uncanny. <laughs> uncanaled um wh why who, who what crazy i know what crazy conversations went on sometimes when i ask the origin of my name i, I get different answers one is both of your great-grandfathers were named sam which sure. is sure uh, on my mother's side. Yeah. Uh, but then the other answer I get is Yosemite Sam because my parents were married in Yosemite. And okay. I was like, okay, but there are like other things you can name people who are the children of people who got married in Yosemite. No, but that's it. That's it. Um, I'm really glad they had you. I'm really <laughs> glad uh, I got to be with you today. And Sammy, I hope this is one of many conversations because I mean, it's just the beginning. I, I, I do too. And, and now next time I want to ask you so many questions. And... Okay. Well, have a podcast. Do you have a podcast? I, I, I don't. Um, mm. uh, I, I know of a network uh, that might have room for you on their slate. It's called Broadway Podcast Network. Um, wow. This has been all joy. Thank you all from joy. the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Um, it's so delightful and I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. The episode was edited by Nicholas Clark. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa.